You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Welcome everybody. Great to be here with you this morning. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors on staff here this morning at Life Church Livonia. And not just this morning, really. I'm always a pastor on staff here. And I believe that God has brought you and I here together on purpose this morning. I mean, just think about it. What are the chances that you would be tuning into this stream right now with me? What are the chances? I think without Jesus, they're pretty slim. I believe that God has a divine appointment for us this morning in his word. And speaking of divine appointments, this week I got to do a really fun activity that I love to do with uh, my small group. And uh, this activity is called a treasure hunt. What's a treasure hunt, you may ask? I'm so glad you asked, let me tell you. So a treasure hunt is based on the idea that God is always at work around us. Do you believe that? I believe that this morning. God is always at work around us. And so the treasure hunt idea is simply us going, Lord, for the next hour, for the next 30 minutes, for the next 25, I'm available to you. Lord, I'm available to do whatever it is you want me to do, to pray for whoever you want me to pray for. Just pray, Lord, that you would show me who you want me to talk to and where you want me to go. And so we take five minutes and we write down just all the things that come to mind and then we share those things. And as we shared those things at small group, uh, someone that wrote down downtown Plymouth, someone wrote down coffee shop, someone wrote down checker tiles, and uh, someone wrote down fast food, someone wrote down red and black. It's okay, it sounds like there's a lot of these things in downtown Plymouth. Let's go and check that out. So small group goes to downtown Plymouth. And in my mind, just kind of the red, the tiles, the fast food, the red and black was sticking. I thought, man, there's that Jimmy John's down there. Let's go just see if you know someone's in that Jimmy John's that we could meet. So we go in there and I'm kind of just like trying to feel it out, right? I'm like, okay, Lord, you know, who do you want us to pray for here today? And so I buy a lemonade and I'm talking to my man, Gabe, little high schooler who's <laughs> running the cash register. I'm like, hey man, can we pray for you today? And he said, no, I'm good. All right, you know. And then there were some girls with a PCA shirt on and I was like, oh, you went to PCA? And like, yeah, we did. You know, I was like, oh, my siblings went there. We strike up a conversation and I go, hey, is there anything we can pray for you about today? And they're like, nah, you know, we're good. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then right as I'm starting to feel like, ah, this was a dud, in walks one of my friends from high school who's no longer following Jesus that I haven't seen in years. And last I knew, he was living on the other side of the country. And sure enough, I'm like, bro, what are you doing here? And he's like, dude, I just came in to get a glass of water from Jimmy John's as we were walking around downtown Plymouth. We just got back from Phoenix, Arizona. And I was like, bro, what are the chances? Like, what are you doing here? So we're going around praying for people. And he's like, uh-huh. <laughs> he's not super into it, which is okay. But I just was like, what are the chances, right? What are the chances that we would show up in this random place we felt like God was telling us to go and that I'd run into an old friend who I hadn't seen since high school, basically, who just moved across the country from Phoenix, Arizona. And what are the chances that in the same time of day, in the same restaurant, at the same place, in the same 10 minute window, we would both show up at that Jimmy John's while I'm looking for people that God wants me to pray for. Well, if you take those things simply as a stroke of luck, I think the chances are one in a million, pretty slim. But if we see those things as God's providence, you see it hearing our prayers and 
moving us like pieces on a chessboard to further what he's doing, I think the chances are one in one. Today, as we end our series on the book of Esther, we're going to be talking about the big idea of God's providence. God's providence. Now, what do I mean by this? What is providence? Well, first, let's talk about what it's not, okay? Providence is not luck. Luck says that your life and the circumstances that unfold within it are nothing more than chance and happenstance. Luck says life is really kind of void of design. It's, it's random and things just kind of happen with no regard to you or your life. They just happen. But providence is different. With providence, life has a designer. And that designer is God himself. And with providence, God himself is at work in all the details of life to bring about his divine purposes and will. He doesn't necessarily cause every detail to unfold as it does. After all, both we and the world are broken by sin. And he doesn't alleviate human uh, responsibility and, and human choice in things. But with providence, God is at work in the details of life, accomplishing his purposes in the world and in the lives of his people, working both in and in spite of every form of human power. Now, God's providence can sometimes feel like luck, especially in the moment, because often he's working covertly rather than overtly, side stage rather than center stage. So at first glance or in the midst of things, like when I ran into my friend at Jimmy John's as I was looking for people to pray for, it can just seem like, what are the chances? I can't believe it. What luck. But when you take a step back and you begin to examine things a little more closely, you can see the providential hand of God at work in so many ways that it's just simply undeniable. And in the book of Esther, we get the privilege of getting to see her life from God's point of view. Because as each of these events in her life unfolded in real time, it could have so easily felt like uh, simply a, a lucky happenstance. But when we can zoom back and take a look at the story as a whole, we can clearly see God's providence at work in her life. If you haven't been with us thus far in the series, uh, in this book of Esther, there are a couple things I want to catch you up on, right? This is like the recap at the beginning of the episode, you know what I'm talking about, like on Disney+, Plus, and this one you can't skip, I'm sorry. So the couple things that have happened thus far in the story, so we're all caught up. First of all, Esther takes place, the book of Esther takes place in this deeply corrupt and broken culture. It is a book in which God's name is never mentioned directly. A king named Xerxes rules this country of Persia, and in chapter 1, good old morally wonderful Xerxes divorces his wife because she won't be his toy at a party. Xerxes holds a competition to choose a new queen, and he chooses a young Jewish woman named Esther, whom he's not aware is a Jew. Esther and her adoptive father, who's also her cousin, Mordecai, uh, are these biblical heroes we're introduced to early on in the book. But like us, they didn't begin like heroes. And unlike the generation of biblical heroes before, like Daniel, who was thrown into the lion's den for standing for God, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into this blazing fire, this blazing furnace, because they refused to bow down uh, to the king, Esther and Mordecai are not those people. They're just trying to fit in, be quiet, not stand out, and look as Persian as possible. However, something changes in Mordecai, and he decides he's done hiding. We're not sure what it is, but 
He decides to take a stand and refuses to bow down to a government official named Haman. And Haman, being the well-balanced and adjusted man he is, decides that the correct response to this personal snub is a genocide against the 15 million Jews living in the kingdom of Persia. Xerxes, to make matters worse, just approves the slaughter without even asking who it is they're killing. Haman's like, there's a certain people, they don't obey your laws, we should kill all of them. And Xerxes goes, whatever you say, buddy, here's the signet ring. Just like, what is happening right now? Mordecai is distressed by this, as you could imagine. And so he turns to Queen Esther to ask her to use her position of power to partner with God and save her people. But if Esther goes into the king's courts uninvited, it could cost her her life. We left off last week with Esther deciding that she was going to risk her life and go to the king uninvited to intercede on behalf of her people. And she asked all the Jews in the capital of Susa to pray and fast with her for three days. And when we pick up today, the time of prayer and fasting is over and the day of decision has arrived. And this is where we pick up. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This was King Xerxes deciding to spare her life. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. If it pleases the king, replies Esther, let the king together with Haman come to a banquet, today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So a couple of things I want you to notice here. Esther dresses in these royal robes, right? So she is dressed to impress. She's taken her life in her hands and she wants to look good. And she wants to remind Mr. Xerxes why she was his favorite. And so she comes into the royal hall taking her life in her hands. And the king responds favorably to her and spares her life and basically says in front of everybody in his court, girl, what is it? How can I help you? Here is a blank check. Your name is on it. Just say the word. But Esther seemingly drops the ball. She doesn't even bring up the Jews. She doesn't bring up the genocide. She doesn't bring up her national identity. Like, what's going on here? Is she just missing the ball with the ball? Is she just afraid? I think that's one way to interpret it. But when I see this, I see Esther's wisdom at play here. Remember, Xerxes doesn't know she's a Jew. And he doesn't even know that he committed, he's like agreed to a genocide against the Jews, right? There's a lot of information he's not aware of. And Esther is smart enough to know you don't walk into the middle of your husband's workplace and tell him in front of all his employees he's failing at running the company especially when your husband is the king of the known world. I mean, listen, you could do that. Esther decides not the right idea, not the time or place. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Not only that, but she's in the king's court. And in this place, Esther is an uninvited guest, literally. Where Haman, on the other hand, is a valuable employee. This turf is not in her favor, and she does not have the advantage here. And Esther knows her man. She knows Xerxes likes a good party. After all, the, the whole book begins with a six-month-long party. 
And so, instead of asking for this favor from Xerxes, revealing how little he knows about the situation going on in front of everybody, she says, hey, I want to do something for you. Why don't you come to my place later? We'll have a little party. And it's going to be at her home where she indeed has the home court advantage. So Xerxes and Haman come to the party. Xerxes starts drinking as he does. We know our boy Xerxes likes a good party and a stiff drink. And again, he wants to know what Esther wants. And so the scripture says, So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. Oh, here we go. Big moment. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Oh, it seems again like, Esther, what are you doing? You know what? Is it, is it part of a master plan? Did you chicken out this time? You got the home court advantage, girl. Why not tell him here? Well, it's unclear. You know, I, I don't know what's going on. But something happens between this first party. Actually, two things happen between this first party and the second party. And I think we begin to see God's providential hand at work. We don't know what was going on in Esther's mind. But I think this decision to wait one more day came out of some of that fruit of the prayer and fasting in a way that she can't even quite understand yet. That's just my take on this. The first thing that happens in between the two parties is Haman has another run-in with his old boy Mordecai and things escalate. This is what happens. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. So Haman storms home, boom, you know, throws open the door. He's kind of in this bad mood. He was just at this awesome party, but now Mordecai's there and Mordecai's ruining everything. And you, you know when people are feeling bad about themselves and like, so they post on social media, like all the great things about their life. You know, this was going great in my life and I have all these accomplishments and this is why my life is so awesome. But really it's not awesome. They're just like trying to make themselves feel better and get some comments and likes to kind of make the day feel a little more manageable. That's basically what Haman does when he gets home. He starts bragging about his accomplishments and how important he is and how he's invited to this, you know, royal party and no one else is. And despite all this, this insufferable Mordecai, he just won't, he won't. And his wife basically interrupts Haman here and she says, <laughs> just listen, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king, to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And this suggestion delighted Haman, and so he had the pole set up. So Haman literally builds this stake that he is just going to stick Mordecai on, and then he heads off to the king to get permission to impale him. And I just got to wonder, what are the chances that today of all days is the day that Haman decides, I'm jumping the gun, I'm not waiting for the genocide, Mordecai, it's you and me, it's on. Because the second thing that happens that evening is that of all nights, the king can't sleep. What are the chances? And, you know, after his night of partying, he just has some insomnia. 
And of all the ways he could have chosen to either fall asleep or enjoy being awake, he decides to call up the scribes and have them read the history of his own reign, which I think is hilarious. It's like, um, scribes, tell me a bedtime story about me. <laughs> Just like really, <laughs> very egotistical. And so anyway, the scripture goes on to say, that night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana, which sounds just like a thug name a little bit, kind of love that name, Big Thana, and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And Xerxes can't believe this. He's like, wait, nothing? Wait, we didn't do anything for Mordecai? I mean, he saved my life. Xerxes is troubled by this, and, and he wants some advice on how to sanctify this situation, because it just doesn't sit well with him. After all, he is the king. He wants to be fair. And so his attendants come back, he, and he says, um, can you see if anyone's in the court? I'd just like to throw some ideas by some people, and I kind of hash out what to do about this. Can you see if anyone's out there? And the attendant comes back and goes, you wouldn't believe it. Haman just arrived and is wanting to speak to you. And the king goes, perfect. What are the chances? Have Haman come in. And so Haman comes in to ask King Xerxes if he can kill Mordecai. And before he can get a word out, King Xerxes asks Haman, Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, in all of his humility, thinks, who else would he want to honor besides me? And so he says to the king, oh, king, great and noble, here's what you should do. Have a royal robe that only you have worn and put it on this person of honor. I think we both know who we're talking about here. And get a royal horse that only you have ridden. And then send someone with this person on your royal horse with your royal robe and have them shout throughout the city of Susa, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, <laughs> the commentaries tell us this kind of public honoring was potent enough to even open a path to succession. Meaning whoever this was done to, it was so uh, favored now publicly by people, that it was possible they could contend for the throne upon Xerxes' passing. This was a big deal. And King Xerxes loves this idea. And he says, Haman, great idea. I love this. I want to make sure, I want you to make sure all this happens just as you said for a gentleman in my court, a guy named Mordecai. Have you met? <laughs> I can just imagine the blood draining from Haman's face and maybe filling his ears. And I just love the, uh, the scripture doesn't say what the conversation was. But I just love the idea of Haman kind of like trudging up to Mordecai and just like having to explain what has to happen now. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't say if this was awkward for Mordecai. It could have been a very silent eight hours of Haman just proclaiming Mordecai's greatness throughout the city. Or it could have been a, a lot of fun needling him like, wow, Haman, I don't know what work the king has got you doing, but buddy, you should ask for a transfer because you have a gift, my friend. No one shouts my praises like you do. I imagine like George Costanza from Seinfeld, right? Needless to say, it was a bad day at work for Haman. But at least, at least, he's got the second party tonight. 
So after Haman's finished with Mordecai and he's all distressed, because not only did Mordecai not die, he has spent all day honoring him and now he's got the king's favor, but at least he's got the party. So he heads to the party and this is what happens. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And King Xerxes asked Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. <gasps> the king storms off in a rage, trying to take in the information that he just heard. Haman? His most trusted advisor, Haman? Wants to kill his wife? And her people? And I think while Xerxes was storming out in the garden, it probably occurred to him, oh, Esther must be Jewish, and it must be the Jews that I gave that genocide request against. What do I do about this? King's edicts can't be overturned. And on top of that, Haman hasn't done anything wrong. He asked, I said yes. What do I do about this? And after pacing around, the king comes back in to see Haman falling almost on top of Esther at the foot of the queen's couch, begging Esther for his life. And I think a light bulb went off in the king's head. You see, Haman had just violated some harem protocol, which I think we're all familiar with here, but just to catch us all up to speed, make sure we're all familiar with our harem protocol, is that no man other than a eunuch or the king could be alone with any one of the king's women in the harem. And no man other than a eunuch or the king could even be within six feet of a woman in the king's harem. And here's Haman falling on top of Esther, begging for his life. And the king, I think, goes, bingo, you just solved my problems, buddy. And he shouts, will he even molest my wife? Fear, I just can imagine, fill Haman's eyes as the words are caught in his throat. And the king's attendants at the party politely inform him, you know, your majesty, Haman just happened to have this impaling stake built to kill Mordecai. Oh, that's right, the same Mordecai you just honored yesterday. And uh, right now it's empty and nobody's using it. And so in one swift act of justice, Esther makes her request, the king kills Haman, and the mastermind behind the threat on the Jews is gone. Talk about a full night. But the edict still isn't overturned. Haman may be gone, but the threat on the Jews is not. So the next day, Esther, much bolder now, enters the king's court uninvited for the second time. And scripture says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. 
If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring can be revoked. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of the king Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And if we remember, the 13th day of Adar was the very same day that Haman set up to annihilate the Jews. And now the king just enshrined in the law that the Jews by law can protect themselves from any attacker, foreign or domestic and the day scheduled for their destruction has now become the day of their salvation. And the story ends with God's people saved. So what are we supposed to take away from this story? What is it that God is illustrating here in this book where his name is never mentioned? Well, like I said at the beginning, if we look at this chain of events purely from the perspective of luck, this story is nail-biting and anxiety-producing and a tale of miraculous fortune. But if we simply ask, what are the chances? What are the chances that King Xerxes would decide to divorce his wife and look for a new one when he did? What are the chances that Esther even lived in Susa to begin with, to be entered in this competition? What are the chances that out of all the women in the capital, he would choose Esther to be his queen? What are the chances that Esther's cousin Mordecai would save the king's life and go unrewarded and unnoticed till the day before this banquet? What are the chances that, that Esther would be spared when she entered the courts of this merciless king who was not known for his kindness towards women? What are the chances that Esther would choose to wait an extra day to make her request, allowing these other events to be set in place? What are the chances that in that extra day, Xerxes would be reminded that a Jew named Mordecai saved his life and that Haman would set up this impaling pole to kill the same Jew? What are the chances that when the queen reveals the plot, this man would take his wife's side over his most trusted advisor, which is the opposite of what happens in chapter one of the story? What are the chances that in a few years, King Xerxes' son, would fund the rebuilding of Jerusalem through Ezra and Nehemiah and its temple with the same government resources Haman was going to use to wipe out the Jews. What are the chances? We when we take a step back and look at Esther's life and the events of it, we begin to see this is not a story of luck, but a story of God's providence at work. We see that God was at work even in the smallest moments, orchestrating the day-to-day -day details of innumerable lives over the course of time so as to accomplish His purposes. 
Three generations before this, when the Jews were exiled, there was a prophet named Jeremiah that God spoke to the Jews for. And God told them that when their exile was done, that he was going to bring them back to Jerusalem because he said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The story of Esther is the story of God providentially guiding the events of human lives and circumstances to accomplish his will and keep his promises, to show his love and protection to his people, even while they're in exile, in punishment over their sin. Even when the odds seemed impossible, even when it looked like death and defeat were inevitable, even when they thought they were going to lose everything, God was at work behind the scenes and was powerful enough to lead every single event in human history towards a good, whole, right, and great conclusion. He is strong enough to bring good out of evil, to bring hope out of hopelessness, to bring life out of death. In the book of Esther, we see God faithfully at work in the lives of his people then. And friends, I want you to hear he is still faithfully at work today. No matter what you may be facing right now as you listen to this sermon, if you are one of God's people, God is quietly and faithfully at work, even in the most difficult circumstances of your life, to bring reversal and redemption to bear upon them. As Max Lucado says, no condition is too dark, no situation too difficult, no problem is so severe that God can't intervene, overturn, and reverse those course of events. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, God is at work for good in all things. He isn't necessarily the author of all things, nor does he approve of how all things go. But he is at work for good in the details of all things. For who? Romans tells us for the good of those who love him. So if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, this is good news, because if you're living your life in a relationship with God, then God's promise to be at work for the good in your life applies to every detail of your life. God is at work in your job. God is at work in the direction of your career. God is at work in your struggling marriage. God is at work in your school. God is at work in the life of your wayward child. God is at work in your friendships. God is at work in your failing health. God is at work in your financial struggles. God is at work in your search for a spouse. God is at work in your struggles with fertility. God is at work in the loss of your loved ones. Whatever the details of your life may be, if you are living in relationship with God, He is working providentially for your good. And when we hold to the reality of God's providence, it gives us a firm peace and an unshakable hope that says, in the words of Corey Asbury, the story isn't over if the story isn't good. Because we trust that no matter how broken our culture, how evil our systems, how sinful our rulers, how downcast the weak, that God is at work in and spite every form of human power to bring his kingdom of heaven to earth and to renew all things. And when we ask ourselves, but I know the circumstances of my life, 
How can that be possible? I just want to remind you, what is impossible for us is possible with God. So where in your life is God inviting you to trust in his providence? To trust that in every detail he is working for your good? Where is he inviting you to believe that in all things he's working for your good even though you don't see it yet? And maybe this morning you don't know Jesus and you don't follow him as Lord and that promise doesn't apply to you yet. I want you to know that promise is open to you. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all sin for all time. And when we say, Lord, I believe in you and I will follow you with my life. When we live in this way of Jesus in relationship with God and we surrender our sins to him on the cross, all of his promises are available to us. And the promise for him to be at work in every detail of your life is available to you. All you have to do is say yes. And so whether you're a follower of Jesus and you are struggling to see where God is providentially at work, or maybe you're just struggling in life in general and you don't know how any good could come out of this, or maybe you're somebody who is yet to follow Jesus and you can feel the Holy Spirit pushing on your heart right now, bringing situations to mind, and you can even maybe feel the heat and love of God inviting you in to His good for your life. I just want you to pray with me right now. Lord, I just lay every detail of my life before you, every struggle, every pain, every confusion, every heartbreak, every loss, every disappointment. And Lord, I just trust that in the cross you have taken all evil and all sin and you have put it to death. And that Lord, when you rose from the dead, you opened the door to a new way of life and you authored the end of the story. And Lord, that end is good. And I just believe right now and trust that you are leading all the details of my life and our time in human history towards your good and right end. Lord, I believe that the story isn't over if the story isn't good. And I just surrender all of my fears, all of my doubts, all of my stresses, and I surrender my very self to you, Lord. I pray that as I trust in your providence, you would create in me an unshakable peace and a firm and steadfast hope that allow me to live in the midst of the chaos of the world in faith in you. Lord, I give myself to you now and I just ask, Father, that you would show me today that you are working for my good in all things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Today, if you just prayed with me and you took a step forward in your relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to please fill that out on our digital connection card so that we can walk alongside you. Thanks for joining us today, and I can't wait to see you next week for the start of our new series, Like a Good Neighbor.